0: Well, this morning, we're going to begin uh, rounding third and coming home in the book of Ephesians in verses six, one through four. When you get there, say, oh, yeah." yeah. If you need a minute, say, hold up, brother. All right. Ephesians chapter six, verse one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And before considering it, we should pray. Let's pray. So, Lord, at this time now, would you come and bless the reading, the hearing, and the doing of your word. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we ask. Amen. Amen. About three weeks ago, we were sitting on our back deck waiting for the deer to make their pilgrimage through our backyard. And as we're watching them move through our backyard, the first pass, it was exciting and boss thinks they're reindeer. So if if he tells you at any point that uh, he saw a reindeer, that's what he's referencing. But on the pass back through, we noticed that there was a deer that was limping was wounded. And in the wild, a wounded animal is more often than not a dead dead animal. And this deer is limping and we begin to feel uh, sorrow. We begin to feel sadness over this wounded deer. And sure enough, we've not seen that wounded deer since the last time we saw it. And as I was getting ready to go through a series on house rules, I started thinking about how many of us are walking wounded. And that there are three primary wounds that many of us carry. Those are father wounds, those are mother wounds, and those are church wounds. And when it comes to father wounds, when it comes to mother wounds, and when it comes to church wounds, many of us, we walk with this woundedness and we try to hide it, but it always ends up coming up. At some point, it's revealed to be the thing that it is. At some level, we're all wounded, which is not particularly bad news when you consider that Jesus Christ himself is a wounded healer, that his wounds were for us, his piercings were for us, his death was for us so that by his wounds we are healed. And when we come to a text on marriage, when we come to a text on parenting, there are some of us who have very real wounds that begin to rise up. I can say without equivocation that godly parents are among life's greatest blessings. And I can say that because of the disproportionate amount of time that ministers like myself and those on staff spend with parishioners working through woundedness from parents who were ungodly. And many have even questioned in our modern day and age that perhaps the problem with society is the family. More particularly, we can't trust parents to educate their kids, so we, whoever we is, will do it for you. I think that's wrong headed, and I think that's backwards. I think because we've got some bad examples doesn't mean we have to throw it all out. Uh, I like this quote from Tom Wright concerning the family where he says that just because a garden grows weeds, we shouldn't pave it over with concrete. Just because there are oppressive families, that's no reason to dismiss family life together. In a text on being a child, I want to acknowledge that not all of us grew up with godly parents and that several of us have deep, deep wounds. God has designed the family to be a tide pool where children can make mistakes that are minimal, be corrected and gain discipline with grace, before they get sent out into the ocean where the giant swells will overtake and one small mistake could kill you. This exhortation to parenting, this exhortation to being a child is for the benefit of both the child and the parents in the context of a safe life giving family that gives glory to God and also provides us a soft place to land. So for children with wounds, I want you to know, I see you, I understand. And on the other end, parenting, my goodness, it can be incredibly frustrating. When you understand that you as a parent know more than your child, but your child knows that they know more than you. Because there is a truism that I think bears repeating is that every generation knew more than their parents did. Every generation saw their parents in some ways as an impediment to their own growth or experience or fun. And yet God so ordains there to be a place and a space for every generation to understand that children are gifts from the Lord, even if we don't experience them as such all the time, and that parents are a gift from the Lord, even if they're not perfect. And as a, very, as a young dad of young children, I will tell you, I am not perfect. Praise God for grace. This morning, I hope to prove this main point of the text this morning. As Paul continues in a discourse on what it, the spirit-filled life looks like, as he continues a discourse of ordering the church against a disordered world. We've seen him talk about orderly worship, spirit-filled worship. We've seen him talk about an orderly marriage and a spirit-filled marriage. Now we're gonna move further into the house and talk about orderly uh, family relations, particularly between children and parents against the backdrop of a Roman culture that in many ways was very, very different. Here's what I hope to prove. I hope over the next 29 minutes to prove that a spirit-filled life is evidenced by obedience to parents and Christocentric parenting. A spirit-filled life is evidenced by obedience to parents and Christocentric parenting. One of the ways that people can tell that you know and love Jesus are filled by his spirit and are seeking to obey and follow and love Jesus is by how you parent. Now, I've got five contextual realities and two pastoral assertions before we hop in the text. By the way, I'm still in my introduction. We're going to get in there in a little bit, all right? Again, all of this is like tap dancing in a minefield, so I, I, I want to set us up well to hear what God has to say. There's five contextual realities that are present and two pastoral assertions. One, those present to hear this letter are Christian. Those present to hear this letter are Christians. So the context is for Christians who are hearing this letter being read by um, um, uh, Timothy or Tychicus at this stage in the game. So these are Christians who are present. Secondly, homes were often intergenerational, meaning in one household, you often had grandparents living with their grandchildren. You had aunts and uncles and extended family in the same household household. In the same complex, so that's in light here. Third, children of various ages are present. The word here in the Greek is tekna, which generally refers to small children. And yet, given the intergenerational nature of the home in the ancient Near East, there would have been adult children still living with their parents, not in a um, sort of failure to launch way, but in a we're gonna honor our parents and take care of them as they age way that was common to the ancient Near East, okay? Fourth, parents are intentionally seeking to rear and raise godly children. Um, That that was one of the things that was different about the household of faith here. And fifth, and this goes to, to my first point this morning, obedience to parents comes secondary to obedience to God. This is a really important point to make because at no point does a parent supersede the authority of God. And if a parent assigns their child with an ungodly, unbiblical task, that child is well within their rights to refuse. Why? Because as parents, we are given authority from God to be parents. That authority is borrowed. That influence is borrowed. And so if a parent were to tell anyone to do something that's unbiblical or ungodly, that child is well within their rights to disobey for they are choosing obedience to God over those with parents. So that's the first pastoral assertion. And the second one is this. For those who are here who might be wrestling with becoming parents, where a sermon like this on parenting might be triggering to you, or even those of you who are here as a child with deep wounds and it might be triggering to you, it might cause you to feel unwanted or unseen or un... No, and I just want you to know that we see you, we love you. I just want to acknowledge that that is the reality for several brothers and sisters in this room. So those are five pastoral uh, contextual realities, two pastoral assertions. And now let's hop into the text. Two main points this morning, one concerning children, one concerning parents. The first is that children, there is blessing in obedience. Children, there is blessing in obedience. Uh, One of the things that Paul does right off the bat is he couches what it means to be a child in a couple of caveats. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. There are two general interpretations for this. One, in the Lord is a context uh, about being in Christ, being in the Lord, that Paul has used at least four other times throughout the book of Ephesians to signify these are likely adult children who are also walking by faith, living in the same household as parents. At the same time, it's an admonition for these children, whether they're older, adult children, or smaller children, to obey and honor their parents in the Lord for the sake of the Lord, for the name of the Lord, as a covenant community together. In other words, you need to obey and honor your parents, whether you're in the house or outside the house. Because we know those people, and I've been one on occasion, where I can talk crazy about my parents outside the house when I was coming up. I could not believe my mother, when I was in 10th grade, would not give me $20 to go to the movie. And she didn't give me $20 to go to the movie. So what did I do? I told all my friends about my mama. And my mother is watching this this morning. Mama, I'm sorry. But the sense of honor is that we speak well to their face and we speak well behind their back. Why? Because God, I I like that Pythagoras, the Roman philosopher, says that parents are our earliest and greatest benefactors. Also children, those present, hearing this letter and those present here, godly parents are a gift. Parents themselves are a gift. And a child never realizes how much sacrifice goes into raising children. And they might get a glimpse when they have children of their own. But when it comes to being a parent, I fully believe that most people are just doing the best that they can. And they all fall short and none of them are perfect. There are some of you in this room who've raised children, raised several children, you're raising grandchildren now. You understand every single day is new. It's a walk by faith for a parent. It's very difficult. And for children, they'll never see it. So Paul says, children obey and honor your parents. Now, this passage not only assumes that children are present and listening, but there's a shift in the idea of submission here between wives submitting to their husbands and children being obedient to parents. Wives submitting to husbands was a voluntary submission that mirrored the submission of the church to Christ Jesus. Here, the language is stronger. Paul uh, uh, hardens the language a bit and says, children, obey your parents. You must obey your parents. What's going on here? In the ancient Near East, in a shame honor culture, that your status in the community was often tied to what those around you did. We don't really get this in an individualistic Western culture in Southern Georgia, United States of America, because we are such an individualistic culture, but in a collectivistic, in a communal culture, Relationships hinge on honor and obedience to those that we're in authority or in subject to. Also, Paul couches his argument in the fifth commandment. And in this fifth commandment, he says that this comes with a promise. Now, what's interesting about Paul telling people to obey is what he sees in the culture as a mark of unbelief or a mark of a pagan culture. He says this in Romans 1, He says it again in 2 Timothy, that a mark of a pagan culture is when children are disobedient to parents. Because when children are disobedient to parents and they're not submissive to the authority God has placed over them, they're also not submissive to God. So he says, children, obey. Why? For this is right. Friend, they gave you life. They raised you. It's only right. Right, it is righteous to obey. But one of the questions that I have in the text, one of the things that's interesting and when you read about this phrase, it has perplexed scholars for years. It is the phrase, this is the first commandment with a promise and then that it may go well with you. The first commandment with a promise essentially means it's the first commandment with a promise that has practical wisdom tied to it for the well-being of the child. In other words, your mom says the stove is hot, don't touch the stove. The stove is hot, don't touch the stove. Your seven-year-old brain says, ooh, touching the stove would be fun. If you touch the stove while it's hot, what's going to happen? You're going to get burned. Well, I told you so. You shouldn't have touched the stove. That is what it means that it may go well for you. But there's still a challenge here because contextually, the mortality rate in the ancient Near East was between 39 and 50%. Between 39 and 50% of children didn't live past the age of 10. If it wasn't complications at birth that got you, if it wasn't sickness and disease as a young child that got you, if it wasn't accident, if it wasn't abuse, if it wasn't some calamity, half of children didn't live to see the age of 10. So there would have been practical wisdom in obeying parents surrounding certain medical remedies, uh, certain practices in the community, certain ways of being and moving through the world that I think God understood when he gave them the law. And one hand, he gave them the law as they're working through the promised land. Hey, I need y'all to listen to me because there's giants in the land and there's dangers out here. If you listen and obey to me, your father, it will go well with you. And if you don't, it won't. But there's also another layer if you have time this week, I want you to read Deuteronomy 28. Yes, that book that many of us rarely ever open. It's okay. There's no shame. But in Deuteronomy 28, God lays out what are covenant blessings and covenant curses. Essentially, God says, if you do what I tell you to do, here are the ways I'm going to bless you. If you don't do what I'm telling you to do, here are the ways that you're going to be cursed. For For us, this commandment, Paul bringing this commandment up, reminds us of the covenant blessings that are attached to obedience and also the covenant curses that are attached to disobedience. And all you got to do is read through the Old Testament to see what Israel chose. On the whole, they chose disobedience. And what did God do? It did not go well for them. So children, obey your parents and honor them for this is right. Obeying and honoring parents shows that the Holy Spirit is active in your life. There is blessing and obedience, don't wait to obey. Now, fathers, and by transition, by extension, mothers as well, how do you parent children when they tap dance on your last nerve? How do you lead at home when they seem to defy every single thing that you do? How do you allow your children to know what God is like through your parenting when it seems like so often they listen to nothing? I think one of the major points that Paul is gonna make in verse four is tied to what parenting shows us, second point, Parents, there is blessing in restrained parenting. Parents, there is blessing in restrained parenting. We're going to get to that here in a moment. But three years ago tomorrow, three years ago tomorrow, Courtney woke me up at 4.33 in the morning and said, hey, babe, it's time and I said oh no it's not <laughs> and the next thing i realized is that my wife is working through contractions in our home okay so this baby's coming emergency contact it's 4:33 in the morning she's not awake okay 911 okay 911 hey my wife is about to have a baby i need y'all to get over here asap They're like, oh, yeah, sir. Well, if you just, I'm like, yo, look, you're not hearing me right now. This is a, like, I'm not going to catch this child. Y'all need to get over here. 11 minutes later, I'm catching boss in our bathroom. And I don't know what to do other than in movies, they say get a bunch of towels and some warm water. I don't know why. So I reach over to the cabinet and I pull a bunch of towels out and I'm trying to turn the water on. She's working through contractions. I'm like, "Oh, right, this is going to be the towels. So I go over there and I catch my son and I'm overwhelmed with emotion. Like, here's my son, wow. And he's there and he's all pruny and purple. And, and, and then like, I'm trying, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get him to breathe and I realize quite quickly he's not breathing. So we get the little, the little uh, I don't even know the proper medical term for this, the sucker ball thing. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I don't even know what that's called. An aspirator or something, maybe? Well, we get it and I'm I'm sucking out his nose and his mouth and I'm like, okay, here you go, buddy. He's not breathing. So I turn him over and I start wearing him out on the butt and on the back, trying to get him to wake up, trying to rub him to wake up. He's not breathing. Cager is awake. So I I hand boss to Courtney and I go take Kager. All of a sudden 911 comes in, the paramedics come in and they're real lackadaisical and they're like, okay, um, we'll come in and we'll take care of you guys. And so I leave and I go put Moana on the TV. Kager, stay here, watch Moana. I go back into the bathroom. They've snipped the umbilical cord and they're rushing my child out of the door. They're putting Courtney on a stretcher and I'm like, what is happening? I'm like, where are you taking my child? What's happening right now? I don't know where they're going. I don't know if my son's alive or not. I put uh, Cager back in bed. Charlie's asleep upstairs. My wife's in the back of an ambulance going somewhere. I have no idea where she's going, and they won't tell me where she is. I'm texting her, and she's not picking up the phone. I don't know if my son's alive or dead for about two and a half hours. The reason those paramedics took my son to the the back of the truck is because they didn't expect him to live. He wasn't breathing. When they got into the car, they were able to get his lungs working. By some method, I'm not sure exactly what it was. But two and a half hours later, as I'm on my way to Chick-fil-A to feed these children and try to figure out what our life was gonna look like, and Courtney tells me that my son is alive, that Boss is alive, I pull over to the side of the road and I have a good hearty cry. Boss didn't cry, really, his first three months of life. He didn't cry. Now he won't shut up. <laughs> I prayed so hard for that kid to live. And I had reasoned in my heart that if God were to take boss, if he were to take him, I reasoned on one hand that God could raise the dead back to life as Abraham did. And like David, if God were to take my son, yet still, would I praise him? And tomorrow he'll be three. And there are some days when I'm like, I can't stand this kid. (laughs) But then I remember how much of a blessing he is. And I remember how much of a blessing children are. Here's why I say that. As a parent, I imagine for those of you who are raising and have raised children, it is easy to parent out of the dregs of emotion where in the moment we lead out of what's left, not out of what our children need. And what's often what's left after a day of worries and strains and stresses that they'll never understand and moving through the world in ways that they'll never get. What we often give them is the dregs of what's left, and that can often frustrate them and lead them to grow in resentment. The word here, when Paul says fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, that word is the same word, it's from the same root from 426. Do you remember in chapter 426, when Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger? Paul says, put a time limit essentially on your anger. Here in 6.4, it is, the, is that same idea of anger, but this is the sort of smoldering anger. It's the simmering anger. It it is the bitter resentment that's built up over time from when parents unreasonably and unjustly and uncharitably speak to discipline and care for their children. What Paul has in mind here is that if you were a father in Jewish culture, even in Roman culture, in the ancient Near East, you wielded an immense amount of authority. In many ways, no one could answer you. You are a king in your own house, and no one could speak against you. And in Roman authority, you could even take your own children to court. You could, by nature, rule and control every aspect of their lives. Paul is not denying the headship that men have because God has assigned it to them. Paul is merely restraining the ungodly wielding of that authority on people who can't defend themselves against your authority. Paul is restraining the power and the authority that a father has in his home. Why? Because this text speaks to parents who intentionally make their children angry. Parents who intentionally frustrate their children parents who intentionally exasperate their children. And if you are or have been a child, I wonder if you felt this. Have you ever felt that the expectations that your parents had were too unreasonable? You ever felt the standard was too high, the burden too heavy, no matter what you did, it was never right. You're never good enough, and you, over time, it's heavy, heavy, heavy. Or maybe you grew up in a home and there was physical abuse where parents took corporal punishment a bit too far. And internally, you see, under your skin, there's a smoldering anger because your parents were unreasonable or severe. I also believe that in light here in this text, given the context of Jewish culture, that abuse from parents is one of the things that Paul is seeking to combat. He is seeking to restrain parents from abusing their children. As Christians in this day and age, love life. They would hear the cries of infants in the streets and run out to get them. Infanticide was common in Rome, and Christians said every soul is precious, no matter where they are. And I think Paul is trying to restrain this power and authority to restrict the abuse that many might experience. And so let me just stop and pause here, and let me just say, if this is your story, If you were abused as a child, and maybe you might be smoldering in anger. That in many ways is righteous. I want you to know that the standard of what a father is does not begin with your earthly father and then translate to God. The standard of what a father is begins with God and then translates to your parents. Earthly parents have to live up to the standards of who God is, not the other way around. I often counsel people and many of our pastors often counsel people who struggle with the fatherhood of God because they don't know what a good dad looks like. And we can sing songs like you're a good, good father and it's really moving to us if we've had earthly examples. But for those who are here may never had that example, I want you to know that just because your dad wasn't good doesn't mean God isn't. And I also want you to know that God is is just. He will not allow the sin. He will not allow the guilty. He will not allow the abuser to get off scot-free, and he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. I think it's important here at this point to bring in that while the emphasis here is on fathers, I do think a general principle extending to mothers is also in light here. And this general principle that extends to mothers is parents and some parents don't abuse your children. Don't abuse your authority rather by treating your children in harsh and unfair ways that create resentment and bitterness. Instead, instead, alternatively, He says, raise them up, train them, instruct them in the ways of the Lord. There's three things in light here when it comes to what he means when he says training. That word training can also mean instruction. One, it means provide for their physical needs. Make sure they got some clothes on their back and some shoes on their feet. Second, it means to show affection to them. And third, It means teaching them the law of God. Um, My children love my grandfather. They think my grandfather is amazing. My grandfather just turned 89, and we were at his birthday party last weekend in Birmingham, and my kids, he got uh, chickens in his backyard, and my kids are running through the chicken coop, and they're having the best and the greatest of times, and we're here to honor and celebrate my grandfather. But they know my grandfather in a much different way than I know my grandfather. My grandfather enlisted to go in the army. As a young man, he faked his age because he needed to be able to take care of his family. At 16 years old, he found himself in Korea. And my grandfather lived an exceptionally hard life. And when I knew him as a young man, I knew him as the toughest man that I'd ever met. I once witnessed my grandfather while cutting tomatoes. He gardened, he's gardened his whole life. He grows all of his own vegetables. I'm, I'm probably eight or nine years old, and my grandfather's cutting a tomato, and the knife slips, and he, slips, he, slits the, he slits his wrist right here, and blood is pouring out. And as a nine-year-old, I'm like, oh, my gosh, is he going to die? <laughs> so he goes over to, the, uh, to this bin he has next to his sink, and he pulls out a roll of electrical tape electrical tape, and he tapes up his wrist, tapes it all the way up, washes his hands and keeps cutting this tomato. I thought my grandfather was the incredible Hulk when I saw him do that. (laughs) But he was raised by an incredibly hard man who was a sharecropper in the Jim Crow post-slavery South. And in those days and age, there wasn't a whole lot of time for affection. My grandfather, as he was raised, there wasn't a whole lot of time for affection. But now in his older age, he's one of the most affectionate men that you've ever met. I I, I think one of the ways that this text has been treated and fatherhood and parenting has been treated is provide for their needs. Make sure you teach them the word, but like hugs, Uh uh-uh. Make sure they got a roof over their head and they're thankful for it. Even when they're not, make sure they're thankful for it. Also, make sure you take them to church But kissing your sons. Uh, I think there's an aspect to this that flips our even our own Southern American parenting culture on its head and says, yes, provide for their needs just as God does. And yes, teach them and train them in the law just as God does, but also show them affection just as God does. There is a shepherding aspect to being a parent that I think is in light here. And the call here is to shepherd their hearts in addition to their behavior. And in the same way for children who are here, it's never too late to obey. For parents who are here, it's never too late to say, I'm sorry. So what are we to do with this? Whether we have wounds, whether we're convicted by the text, whether we've been disobedient to our parents or whether perhaps we've parented our children to anger and frustration, what are we to do? I think third and finally this morning, the admonition is to look to Jesus. I think that's the admonition. It is not to look within and somehow try to justify ourselves and and to simply say I was doing the best that I could and so that has to be enough. No, it is the fact that we must look to Jesus to look like Jesus. And if there are ways in which that we have not modeled that in our obedience to our parents or in the way that parents regard their children, then it's never too late to say, I'm sorry. I think three things to close our time this morning. Are y'all all all right? I know it's heavy, It's 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 one of them mornings. But I think there's three things to close our time this morning. I think one, I think children, honor and obey your parents as Jesus honored and obeyed his father. So here's Jesus, he is God. He's also positioned as the son of God, the begotten, the only unique son of God. And Jesus, possessing all the power that God the Father does, same in essence, same in nature, essentially God and Christ Jesus are made of the same stuff, willingly submits himself to God the Father in everything. Do you remember what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane? He says, Lord, if it be your will, remove this cup from me, but not my will, but yours. Father, help me glorify you. It was the son's desire to glorify the father, to be obedient to the father, as Paul would say in Philippians 2, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Children, there's an aspect that our obedience to our parents in a culture that has widely disregarded the family and in a culture that displays wide disobedience from children toward parents, our obedience in loving, gracious, Christ-centered ways is a testament to the Spirit's work in us. And parents, secondly, parents, care for your children as God cares for you. Care for your children as God cares for you. If you've ever struggled with how to parent your children, think about how God the Father throughout the Bible and the person and work of Christ and through the Holy Spirit parents you. Is there condemnation of God toward you in your relationship? Does God hold grudges? Does God have a long memory? Or has he cast your sins as far as east is from the west? Even in our rebellion, when we are the most disobedient, when we have cursed his name, he has responded in grace. How does that mark us as parents? And third and finally, for everyone in the room who feels sliced up by this like I do. Third, Jesus is a wounded healer. He knows. There's an aspect to all of this that Christians should be the greatest repenters, the most swift to say, I'm sorry, the most swift to make a wrong right. And at the same time, when there is pain that is too deep for words, when we've been subject to the abuses of those who were supposed to care for us, friend, Jesus knows. When, when there has been, uh, 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 you're looking back at your life and the life of your children, and you're thinking to yourself, "How in the world did we get here?" I want you to know, Jesus knows. Don't stop praying. Don't stop believing. Don't stop caring. Don't stop loving. They may throw it in your face, but love them anyhow. They may throw it back in your face. They may resent you for being kind and gracious. Do it anyhow. Why? Because even Jesus submitted his life to his father for the sake of others. Jesus is a wounded healer. He knows. I'm done. I don't know what God is doing in us and in you this morning, but I want us to take just a few minutes to respond to God's word. Maybe that's to respond in repentance Maybe that's to respond in faith. Uh, Maybe that's to respond by committing that you're going to have that conversation that you've been putting off for a while. Maybe that's to actually say the things that you needed to say. I don't know what that looks like. But whatever that looks like, let's take the next 30 to 40 seconds to respond to the word of the Lord. And I'll pray for us here in just a moment. Father, I thank you that your love is patient, it's kind, it's merciful, it's long-suffering. I thank you that you don't keep a record of wrongs. And Lord, I thank you that you meet and greet us with grace for every step of the way. There is no condemnation in you. There is no displeasure toward your children in you. Somehow in your perfection, you respond only in love in grace and in mercy. But Father, we are not that. We are not perfect. We make mistakes. So Spirit of God, would you help us when we get it wrong? Would you help us when we not only get it wrong, but when we've gotten it wrong for a long time. But Lord, even the thief on the cross found paradise At the last minute, Father, it's not too late. And for me as a child and even for my children, Father, I pray that we would steward that godly authority for the sake of our children and the sake of your name. That we might be people who would care for everyone, discarding no one because you love us all. And So now as we sing, would your love and your care be on the forefronts of our mind as we lift our voices to you? We love you so much. It's in the name of Christ Jesus we pray, amen.